This is a recording of lecture eight in a series brought about the confession of faith for Faith Baptist Church in Sheboygan, Michigan. Today's lectures cover sections 16, 17, 18, and 19. If you are using the downloadable uh, PDF from, it's available on sermonaudio.com or faithbaptistupnorth.org, you can see that, uh, <clears throat> you can follow along, be, it'll, it would be pages 15, 16, and 17. There's also a supplemental section uh, to that, which covers uh, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, and some other issues. These are not statements that we have adopted as a church, but they are uh, additions or updates made by the General Association of Regular Baptists for on their on the website. So, first of all, let's talk about perseverance and preservation of the saints. We believe that such as only are real believers, as endure unto the end. Um, but their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors, that a special providence watches over their welfare, and that they are kept by the power of God through faith unto eternal salvation. This section is called Perseverance and Preservation of the Saints. More commonly known uh, amongst Baptists today or churches like ours is the security of the believer. And that's the teaching that once a person has been born again, they become a child of God, and then everlastingly, they are a child of God. Now, the distinction our confession makes, and it's one we all should pay attention to, is it says that there are real believers versus superficial professors. Real believers versus superficial professors. If you were to take your copy of God's Word and turn to um, John chapter 8, verse 31, you'll find where Jesus says, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. This idea of continuing is important. If you look at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, you see the, uh, the apostles writing to the church of Colossae. And the church of Colossae was, was being uh, influenced by Gnosticism in their area and some Gnostic views of of Christ. And so Colossians 1, 21 through 23 say that you will be saved if you continue to believe these things. If you continue to believe these things. Now, the if there is worth noting because I think we would all be in agreement that if a person says, I do, I do not, or I no longer believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Son of God who died on the cross for my sins. If a person says, I do not believe that, we have to take them at their word and say, okay, well, then that person obviously is not a Christian. No matter, no matter how they identified in the past, they are not a Christian. So this is where security of the believer uh, has to be understood in its right context. We do say, when we preach the gospel, that whoever believes in Jesus will be saved in the last day. Now, the only way to know 
if a person's faith is authentic or not is over time. Time will tell the tale. So if you look in Mark chapter 4, you have the parable of Jesus and the soils. And you have the, the hard soil, the stony soil, the soil that is uh, weedy, and then you have good soil. And in all those scenarios, the so all four types of soil receive the, receive, receive the word of God, receive the seed. And the first soil is so hard that the seed lands on top of it, and it does, it does no good. It's just laying there, and the Bible says the bird's coming, carry it away. The second scenario is where the seed lands on stony soil, so it's um, soil, stuff, soil that's mixed with stones, and the seed, when it hits that soil, it immediately germinates, you know, and, and starts to grow, but it doesn't last because there's no root. The rocks keep it from having a good root system. And so when persecution or tribulation comes, when, when hard times come, Jesus says those people who are stony, stony-hearted people, I guess we'll use that terminology, they, they leave church. They, they, they bail out of the Christian faith. Then you have the third type of soil, which is the weedy soil. So a person comes and uh, they, 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 they say they're believing and they grow for a while. Then over time, it becomes apparent that, uh, that they love other things more than Jesus. That they love other things more than Jesus. It's, just, it's really a striking reading. When you go there and read that... Um, it's very sobering. It's very sobering to, to think about the implications of of all those things. And then you have the fourth soil, which is good soil. And when the seed hits that soil, it produces a lot of fruit. There's you know, a significant amount of evidence of salvation. Now, how much time does it take to reveal what you are? How much time does it take? Well, it can, it can, take, it can take a while. It can take a while. You know, a person, think of people who put their faith in Christ when they're 10 or 11 years old. And they're not making massive life changes. You know, whatever sitting they're up to is probably not as major as what a 35-year-old man could be up to or a 35-year-old woman could be up to. But what reveals the truth, their true spiritual condition, is time. they got an 11-year-old kid, and then and they go to church, they they, they love God, they read the Bible, they pray, they, you know, and they turn 16, and instead of, uh, you know, being a hellion, they're, you know, they, they basically behave themselves, and then and when they're 18 or 19, they decide, you know, I'm going to do something with my life here, I'm, I want to do something for God, so they either want to go to Bible college, or or they go to state college, they go to regular college, and get a degree, and join a church, and serve the Lord uh, in some way, you know, it takes, you never know, it, it takes time to tell the tale. I baptized uh, a kid one time in, uh, what was it, let's say, Oklahoma or Arkansas, I can't remember. Young guy said he wanted to be baptized, and and <laughs> um, I baptized him one week, and the next week he was gone, never be seen again. <laughs> so uh, uh, it takes time. But those persons who are um, attached to Christ, they have an enduring attachment to Christ. And... Um, 
you know, we may have somebody come here and make a profession of faith, and then they go away. They 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 go away, and then uh, they they either fall away there or here. The basic teaching of this section is is that those persons who have really been born again, they persevere in their persistence to Christ, and that their preservation, this persevering this persevering nature and attitude and faith that they have is not produced by them. They're preserved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so preservation and perseverance work together. If you are persevering, you, are, you will be preserved and you persevere because you have been preserved. That's kind of a way to think about that. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. The apostle gives us this long list of things. What shall separate us from the love of God? He gives this long list of things. And he says, for thy sake we are slain all the day long. You know, but even then, even though we're slain by our enemies, sometimes we're more than conquerors through him that loved us and gave himself for us. And that's Jesus Christ. So perseverance and preservation of saints is the teaching that once a person is born again, once a person is saved, they are always saved. And that if a person... Uh, falls away if they say at some point in their life, I no longer am a Christian. We're not saying that they lose their salvation. We're saying that it has been made apparent to us that they never were saved at all. Now we come to section 17, the righteous and the wicked. We believe there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked, that such only as through faith are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and sanctified by the Spirit of God are truly righteous in His esteem. So that's the, the righteous. The righteous, they have faith, and they are pursuing sanctification. Or the, the work of being made Christ-like is, is taking place. They're being molded into His image. While, and then the opposite is, while all as such continue in impenitence and unbelief, are in His sight wicked and under the curse, uh, so the, this is the other side of it, those persons who are not living, don't have their faith in Christ. They're not living, uh, uh, pursuing sanctification. These things kind of go together. A person who is a Christian is not going to be a perfect person, but they're going to be a uh, a, perf a perfecting person. They're going to be becoming more uh, and more like Christ over time. You know, it's 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 really one of the saddest things uh, I've ever seen is how you have a person who is a Christian. They say, I'm a Christian, and I've been a Christian for, you know, 50 years. But they're just as bitter and nasty, vindictive and mean as any child of Satan. <laughs> I just uh, So you're, you're made more like Jesus uh, over time. Now, this radical distinction is permanent. Um, it, it's it's going to be, it says the, this distinction holds among men, both in and after death. So the person who dies without Christ, without faith in Jesus, is going to exist eternally in a separate place than those who die with faith in Christ. Those persons who die believing the gospel, they go to heaven and they're there forever. Those who die without believing the gospel, they go to hell, and they're there forever. Listen to the words here that describe this. This distinction holds among men both in and after death, in the everlasting felicity of the saved 
and the everlasting conscious suffering of the lost. So this word felicity is the is the state of being happy, a blissfulness, a blessedness, an enjoyment of good. Those who have followed Christ, believed his gospel, took his message to heart, those persons, those persons will spend eternity in bliss. And the opposite is true for those who have been Christ rejectors. In Malachi three, chapter verse in Malachi three, chapter three, verse eighteen, where this is an eschatological section of the Old Testament. We're talking about the Son. The Son of God is going to come and that somebody's going to come just before him. But when you get to the this part of chapter three, it says when the Lord comes, he's going to make it so that everybody knows the distinction between those who served him and those who did not. They're going to know who is the follower of Jehovah and those who are his servants. Now, I'm going to turn in this uh, little thing here to Malachi 3.18. I want to read that to you because I think reading it will be helpful. This is verse 17. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be tr treasured. They will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Now, that it's it's very possible that this could be a hint. This could be a hint, uh, or hearkening back to what happened in Egypt uh, when. The people of God were protected from the wrath uh, of the of the Red Sea, protected from some of the plagues. That you know, here are the righteous who are serving me, and these are those who are not serving me. That's going to be in the last day. Uh, in Luke chapter sixteen, it talks about the two fates: uh, a man goes to hell, a man goes to paradise, delivers it, uh, is delivered from it, and then you have that uh, reading from Matthew chapter seven. Verses 13 to 14, and I'll turn there and read that to you. Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So there you have, uh, this. there's these two, these two ways. And... People are on each path today, and uh, I wonder what path you are on. Are you sure that you are on the path to heaven? Have you really considered these things? Have you thought about uh, the reality that there is a path that leads to destruction and one that leads to life? And the, the gate, the gate to the path to life is Jesus Christ. Enter through him, through the narrow gate, into life everlasting. Now, civil government. Section 18 here is about uh, what we believe about the government. We believe that civil government is of a divine appointment for the interest and good order of human society, that magistrates are to be obeyed for conscientiously, honored, and obeyed, excepting only, excepting only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ who is the only Lord of the conscience and coming Prince of the Kings of the earth, opposed to the will 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I put a note there. The last two years have given us uh, kind of an ongoing exercise um, to determine the rights of the government and the rights of the church. We've gone through this coronavirus pandemic and, you know, because of the way America is structured, the federal government uh, passed down some advice and, you know, rules of various kinds that are not enforceable upon every single state because we still have a representative republic. And so we have this, each state is sovereign in some areas uh, where it does not have to obey the federal government. The center of the federal government is in Washington, D.C. Uh, the center of the state governments are in the individual states and their capitals and their, their legislatures. Now, Christianity, going back as, as far as you want to, has a long history of resisting governments. Now, that doesn't mean that Christianity is in favor of rebellions and overthrowing governments in general. Now, Christians and Christian ministers and churches have participated in the overthrow or of their own government or other governments, mostly their own governments. And uh, the English Civil War under Cromwell is kind of an example of that where basically you have the, the Protestant um, British doing battle with the Catholic British, the Roman Catholic British, you know, following the king. Interesting time in history. And then in America, uh, those are probably not the best illustrations uh, for that. So we have this section about human government. And the governments that be ordained of God, and we and we believe that we should respect the government because of they are they are God's ministers. This is what Romans 13, 1 through 7 says. That these are the powers that be, these these have been ordained by God. Let's have a reading of Romans 13, just to refresh our memories of these things. Everyone must submit himself to the government authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against God, against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For a ruler told no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. You want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants, 
who would give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you pay ta- if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is this is quite a mouthful. This 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 causes us to say, okay, well the government is ordained of God. Now in America, because this is such a, a great country with a magnificent set of principles that, that guide us, uh, we can look at our government and say, you know, it's obvious God has given us that government. But if you're in, in China or uh, in Afghanistan or North Korea, um, maybe Russia, maybe some of the, uh, like in Thailand right now where they have a military dictatorship kind of a thing going on maybe or in uh, uh, Burma I think it's, is it still called Burma I don't I don't know there's all these different kinds of governments the kind of governments that may cause a Christian to go I don't know if I can really honor this government or we have to realize that the governments that exist are are, are providing some benefits to us now they they also uh, make claims upon us. So here the apostle mentions taxes, and he says, you know, whatever you owe somebody, uh, you know, pay them. If you owe them honor, give them honor, etc. So in the last few years in America, Christian churches have had to decide, you know, how how much authority does the government have? How much authority does the government have? Now, myself in the coronavirus confusion. Um, Initially, the thing everything is going to shut down. You know, we're gonna, everybody's going to take a break for a few weeks or a month or so to try to curb, uh, you know, slow the curve or stretch it out. Which you know um, seems really now in hindsight just to have delayed the inevitable. But basically, we're slowing the curve to protect healthcare workers in hospitals and those those kinds of things. And you saw a kind of an across-the-scale closure uh, of things. Now, in the individual states, each individual state, you know, act, acted in, in their own way. Even even each municipality uh, acted in its own way. And in Oklahoma, where we lived at, the governor was very um, gave a lot of a lot of lab, latitude uh, to people. He's there was an essential list of businesses, and some businesses. You know, close, and then some were declared. Uh, it didn't take long for a lot of businesses to find a way to to make themselves essential, and uh, of course, they were all essential in the sense that, uh, you know, that, that's what put that's what put food on the table uh, for American people, our businesses and jobs. So, uh, when the essential lists start to come out, one of the things that was not considered to be essential by all state governments were churches, because churches uh, do not provide, in the eyes of the government, uh, an essential service. The government says that because the governments in general don't have any respect for God at all. Uh, Even when they have a minister come and pray in their general assemblies, it's not because they have any fear or reverence for God. It's It's just a vain tradition. If they did have fear and reverence for God, they would not only have a Christian minister come and give a prayer, 
they would be asking a Christian minister to come and lead us in repentance <laughs> so we can get get right with God and get well and, and, and you know and be a clean holy people but because it's just lip service it is just lip service it means absolutely nothing when the state legislature has a clergyman come and give a prayer to open their sessions or when uh, when President Biden was inaugurated um, the great Garth Brooks came and, and sang Amazing Grace at the inauguration, which was a wonderful old hymn written, sung by a very talented singer. But I do not think that anyone there, not Mr. Brooks, not Mr. Biden, uh, or anybody else on the platform had any idea, any concept at all of what that song is about. It was just lip service, and they have Christian ministers coming. It, it, it is not because it's not because these people believe in the true and living God and have respect for Him and His Son Jesus Christ. It's just it's just a tradition. That's why the government's view of the churches was so low. Now, when Christian ministers and and Christians who go to church and who love the church, when they saw that the churches were declared non-essential caused them to rise up and say we are essential we are essential and churches are essential friends this country needs christian churches and and more than that christians need christian churches the visible local assembly when it meets together it does not meet together for the good of global man it it, it meets together for its own worship of God. We need to worship God. We are His people. He has commanded us to come and worship. Now this command to come and worship Him is where the, where the tension appeared. At first, uh, almost everybody was in agreement, let's take a break for a few, a few weeks. Uh, a lot of churches took a break. Not all churches did. Some churches decided to do that. Our church in Oklahoma, we they passed a rule in our city that said you couldn't have more than six people at a time come to church, and so everybody in our congregation was uh, pretty much uh, happy to to take a break because people were were concerned. We know what's going on. We didn't have church for six weeks, and then we once we came back together, uh, we never stopped meeting again. Uh, we we made some. Some rules we, you know, we asked that people uh, keep their distance from each other. You know, no handshaking, and we changed the format of our service a little bit. We only had uh, one song, and then the sermon, the one song, we kind of sped things up uh, that way we could worship God and and um, and not be foolish. We wanted to take a wise approach, but not every, um, but it wasn't so in every congregation. Some some congregations had real real problems with this now what happened in the in the lockdowns and the shutdowns is that it moved from Romans 13 where we were honoring the government when it became apparent that it wasn't really about uh, health anymore uh, people are, are are making are saying you know we should not be shutting down the churches anymore and the reason for that the reason why a person would say okay we're 
we're going to go back to having church even though we're still in the middle of a pandemic. One of the contributing factors to that was that people were not dropping like flies. That was the primary fear, was everybody's going to die. Large number of people are going to die. And when you begin to see that it's not quite as high, it's not near as high as they projected, it was much lower. John MacArthur said, you only have like a 90, uh, 99% uh, chance of survival if you get coronavirus. So, uh, so once it became evident that it's not as bad as people are saying, people start to say, okay, we're going to go back to church. Now, in my opinion, what any individual church decided to do was the right thing to do. If a church decided we're not going to meet, if that was their decision, I think that was the right decision for them. If a church said we're going to keep on meeting, I think that was the right decision for them. Because those individual congregations have to make their own decisions. And those congregations who said we're going to go back to meeting and we're never going to stop meeting, they felt that we had moved from a Romans 13 situation where we're honoring the government by submitting to a change to an Acts chapter 4 kind of situation where the Jewish magistrates were saying to the, the Christians, you cannot preach anymore in Jesus' name. And so it switched to, um, now, and, and then you, Initially, I didn't feel like it was persecution against the Christian church because, you know, in a lot of states, uh, these prohibitions were against everything. You couldn't have, you couldn't have, uh, um, you couldn't have basketball games or soccer games or, you know, whole, uh, whole college careers had been extended because they didn't allow them to play sports, uh, in the, in the COVID years. So, when everybody is shut down, it's not persecution. But when everybody is given an exemption, when everybody's given an exemption, except a Christian church or a way to or, to, or a way to meet together, that's that's where the problem comes in. And then uh, so many of these attitudes about the government and their overreaches, which the government was always overreaching, were, is fueled by social media and Facebook posts, and very one-dimensional conversations where you have sound bites, and, uh, and then you had some of the some major players in the evangelical world uh, sending out letters and emails and blog posts and public statements, and you know telling them to throw off the church and some of the churches that are choosing to shut down. You also have these two opinion, two warring factions out there. Uh, we have one faction of people saying we're not going to. Uh, ever, you know, we're 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 going to resist and keep on meeting. And another side who's cautioning people before they follow that that voice. And you almost had these two two opinions about it. You have, in my opinion, this is the way it looked to me. Was you had John MacArthur in California who's coming back saying we're not going we're not going to quit meeting. And then maybe on the the East Coast you have a person like Mark Dever uh, and other major churches in the on the East Coast saying, you know, the government told us we can't have church, so we're not going to have church. We're going to go through the courts, you know, and sue and do all the things that we need to do to try to get our rights back. And uh, these two factions, and a lot of heat generated uh, in there. One thing that I really, 
I guess I didn't really understand or think about during that time period was the fact that in America, we have even our rights, our civil rights, are given to us by the Constitution of the United States. Now, we all say these rights are given to us, we're endowed with certain you know, inalienable rights from our Creator. And that's true. But in order to enjoy those civil rights, the government has to acknowledge that those rights exist. If there's no governmental acknowledgement of those rights, then, then you're, you have a real problem. Because then you're, you're basically a lawbreaker. So civil government, in general, we're going to obey the government. When the government tells us we cannot worship the Lord or serve God, we're going to resist the government. Now, the way we resist the government has to be humble resistance and uh, shrewd or wise resistance. So, for instance, if next week, if the governor said here to us in Michigan, you know, start next next week, uh, churches can't meet for the next six months, you know, for whatever reason. Um, I would I would I would say to the church, look, I think we should keep on meeting. And if any of you uh, disagree with that, then you don't don't feel like you don't feel obligated to come. It's your your choice. I think we should meet. And if we're going to meet, since it will be an illegal meeting, I think that what we'll do is we're not going to post anything, any of our sermons or announcements online. Uh, basically, work work off of a, a word of mouth kind of a thing. We may choose to not meet here at this house of worship. We may meet in uh, different locations. We may you know, all drive out here to a uh, a little a little wooded place and have worship out there, or at somebody's home, uh, some kind of private place. We may we may we may move around, you know, but we want to keep on worshiping the Lord because we we don't want to provoke the government needlessly. We want to pray that they change their mind. Or we want to keep on meeting. Anybody who didn't now, if the whole church voted, if we put it to a vote and the church said, you know, we think we should not meet for the next six months, I would submit to the church. I would still say to anybody who was interested that I'm going to be giving a Bible, a Bible message at my house, you know, for anybody who wants to, to come over and sit in the backyard or in my garage and hear hear, hear a sermon can come. But if the whole church voted to to not do it for a period of time, I would submit to the church in that sense. Uh, and if the church voted to keep on meeting uh, normally without making any adjustments, I, I would I would go along with that too, although I think it would be uh, a little bit foolish. You don't want to provoke the powers because the powers, you want to, if you're going to suffer, uh, you want to suffer, you want to die on the right hill. You guys know that terminology. Now, the, section 19 is about uh, last things, the, uh, the resurrection, the return of Christ, and related events. You could call this eschatology. This will not be a very uh, long talk about eschatology uh, either. Now, in the material, letter A, B, and C of section 19, A, B, C, and D, are all commonly held. Now, these these are what these are what Bible believing Christians believe in. 
that Christ rose from the dead bodily, and that he ascended bodily back to heaven, and that Jesus Christ in heaven uh, sits on the throne, on the mercy seat, in my opinion, and he is the um, the only mediator between God and man, as Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. That's where Jesus is. He's our priest in heaven right now. Now, the the less commonly held things are E, F, G, H, and I. Now, this says the premillennial and pre-tribulation coming of Christ. And it has a colon that's going to describe what this is. We believe the rapture of the church will take place before the tribulation, and the revelation of Christ will take place at the end of the tribulation before the millennium. So the statement says that uh, we teach, we believe that Jesus is going to come before the tribulation period starts, that's the seven years of David's trouble, he's going to come then, and this confession doesn't say this, but what's going to happen is he's going to come out in the clouds, he's going to uh, resurrect all the dead Christians, all the dead believers, and then all the living believers will all be uh, getting new and glorious bodies and will meet him in the air, and there will be a seven-year pause while, while things are going on up there. Um, and usually that's the, the judgment seat of Christ and uh, things that will take place for the seven years. At the end of that seven years, Jesus will um, come again from heaven all the way down to earth and set up the earthly kingdom. And then he'll set up a millennial kingdom. His throne will be in Jerusalem. And he'll reign and rule over the earth for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, uh, at the beginning of the thousand years, Satan will be bound with a chain and put in a bottomless pit. But then after 1,000 years, Satan will be set free from those bonds and he will go throughout the world uh, deceiving the nations. And then those persons who he deceives will be, um, will attack, will follow him in an attack on the people of God and Christ himself. And uh, God will send down fire from heaven and destroy him. And then after that destruction, there's the great white throne judgment, and then we'll, after that is the, you know, everybody's cast into hell, or to the lake of fire. Everybody in hell is brought out, it says, and it goes to the lake of fire, and then you'll enter the eternal realm. And that's what pre-millennial, pre-tribulation uh, is. If we believe the rapture of the church is before the tribulation period, and then uh, Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom at the end of the millennium. And that's standard. That's that's, that's very normal. Uh, there's th three opinions about the second coming of Christ. There's they're all related to the millennium. There's the amillennial position, the premillennial position, and the postmillennial position. Probably uh, up until the 20th century, postmillennialism was the popular view, and then premillennialism uh, took over uh, in the 20th, 20th century because post-millennialism says the world is eventually the gospel is going to subdue the world and uh, and then Jesus will come back and receive a world full of people who've been brought into obedience to the gospel and that was 
that was the, the common view until in the 20th century because in the 20th century was when everything went sideways. Uh, more people were killed in the 20th century uh, than any other time in history. It's, it's, it's a fantastic number of people who were killed. I think with, with the world wars and then the, uh, all the deaths that took place uh, in the Holocaust, all the cleansings and purgings of the rise of communism, of socialism in China and in Russia and the Soviet Union in their conquest, the number of people slain in the, in the 20th century is, is fantastic. And I don't even, uh, I don't know the exact number of people. And this is not deaths of soldiers. These are, these are deaths of, of moms and dads and kids like, like us. I mean, just regular people being killed, soldiers killed too. But basically, during that time period, um, it became obvious to most people that the world was not getting better because the world, you know, there were so many gains and advances in the last part of the 19th century, from 1850 to 1900. I mean, you're going from uh, steam to electricity. You're going from horses to automobiles. And then you, I mean, it's just uh, the Industrial Revolution. You know, people are um, mass producing things. Uh, um, advances in all, all kinds of things uh, just, just until lifespans are doubling in that time period it's just a uh, it's a great time to be alive and then boom the world wars and all the travesties of, uh, of of the revolutions in the 20th century now that man has all these great uh skills they made weapons of war that have just uh you know think about it my friends uh you can go down to a gun store and you can buy a, a rifle, uh, an AR-15 or um, something in that class of weapon. And you can order, um, you know, thousands of rounds of ammunition for it. And that thing will fire at a sustained rate probably of at least, uh, let's just say at the bottom edge, uh, a hundred rounds a minute, a hundred shots a minute. I mean, that is more firepower uh, than um, in the colonial period to get a uh, hundred shots off in a minute. You'd have to have 100 men with 100 guns firing, firing at the same time. And now you got one guy uh, doing that with incredible accuracy. It's just, it's just, uh, and so the weapons of war are, that we have today are magnificent uh, in their killing power. And then you have these other events, F, G, uh, H, and I, you have the resurrection of the righteous dead, that we believe that the righteous really will rise from the dead. Uh, and then you have the change of the living in Christ. There will be the, when Jesus comes, there's new bodies that will be gotten. And then Christ will sit on the throne of David for 1,000 years. And I guess maybe it's the eternal throne too. And then you'll have this reign on earth. Christ will reign on earth. This is all pertains to this 1,000 year reign. Because the three views are post-millennial, pre-millennial, and amillennial. Amillennialism just means there is no real millennium. 
it's just I mean, post-millennial means there's no real millennium either. They're just, you don't know how long it's going to be. Um, until Jesus returns, and all millennials says we're basically just waiting for Jesus to return and straighten, you know, straighten things up, and then we'll go into eternity. Um, now, that's what our confession teaches. Now, if you hear me teaching and preaching here at the church, or you won't hear me describe things in this way. Because I have uh, a different idea about the second coming of Christ. Now, when you talk about premillennialism, there's different kinds of premillennialism. There's dispensational premillennialism. Um, there's classic premillennialism, premillennialism, and, and there's modified versions of each kind. But basically, uh, I believe I'm a premillennialist. I believe Jesus is coming. I always fall in the category of classic or historic premillennial views. So here's, I'll give you my timeline uh, of the second coming of Christ. I think that just before the return of Christ, it is likely that all true ethnic Jews will be converted directly by the Holy Spirit to faith in Christ. And I take that from Romans 11, verses 25 and 26. I'll give you that reading. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until a full number of the Gentiles have come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So I think that just before Jesus returns, it's likely that all the Jews will be converted and uh, all the living Jews on the planet. Now, what will be the means of their conversion? I think it, it's possible it could be a direct action of the Holy Spirit, or it could be um, through the preaching of the gospel done by done by Gentiles. So, you know, God God can do whatever He wants to do, and the normal way uh, that God works is through the ordinary means of the preaching of the Word of God. And so, this is something to think think about how it works nowadays. Uh, right now, if a person it's just, uh, English is kind of an international language. If a person has a, a decent level of English, uh, you can just, uh, you can come across gospel sermons anywhere online. I mean, they're just, the places where they're, excuse, excuse me, the places where you can get access to gospel uh, teaching and preaching is just incredible. So I believe all the Jews will be converted just before Jesus returns. And then I believe Jesus will, I think Jesus will return around the time that the man of sin appears. And that's 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 11. Now, 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes and tells them Jesus is coming. Then Paul writes 2 Thessalonians because somebody had told the Thessalonians, hey, Jesus has already come. He's already come back and you missed it. And so Paul writes 2 Thessalonians to tell the Thessalonians that, hey, Jesus has not returned, and he's not going to return until this happens, until this happens. Now, this lends itself uh, sometimes to part of the mid-trib rapture theory. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know uh, about this, about the tribulation rapture business. I don't really take a position on those things. Number two, 
when Jesus returns, he will rapture, capture, or go to the saints who are dead and alive. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 5-11. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51-52 say that this resurrection, this, this getting of new bodies will take place at the last trump. At the last trump. And I think that um, if you want to use the trump as a marker, uh, then the last trump sounded in Scripture, as I as I understand it, is in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. So these things are, are going, going to happen. Now I'm turning to Revelation 11 in my Bible. I want to think about this uh, for a second. So, so I don't know. That's just... This this could this could be the last trump referred to by the apostle Paul, which if you are a strict chronological uh, person in the book of Revelation, you're gonna you know that those cause you to, to rethink that position. Now, uh, number three, the resurrected and raptured saints will meet the Lord in new bodies in the air. We'll get the new bodies, meet the Lord, and then I think immediately we'll return to the earth where Christ will set up His kingdom. That's Revelation 19. Verses 11 through 21. So instead of that uh, pause in the air for seven years, I feel like reasonably sure that Jesus is going to come, we're going to come straight down and set up the earthly kingdom. When Jesus comes down and sets up this kingdom, he's going to destroy with the word of his mouth everyone who is not a believer, and Satan will be bound. For 1,000 years. Let me give you this reading uh, from this. Um, Revelation 19.11 Found uh, a white horse. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are blazing fire. His head are many crowns. His name written in him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine, fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with, with which to strike the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress, the fury of the wrath, and the God Almighty, all his robe is written, and his has a name written. When he comes down, he is a great slaughter, and then uh, the beasts and the kings of the earth are gathered together to make war against the rider, his horse, and army. But the beast is captured, etc., and they're killed and cast in a lake of fire. Satan is bound in chapter 20. So that's what I think are the, uh, the timeline of events uh, for that. Uh, he's going to come down and set up his kingdom. Satan will be bound for this 1,000 years. Christ will rule with his people over the earth. And then fifthly, after 1,000 years, Satan will be released. And all the damned dead, all the those who died outside the faith will be resurrected to follow Satan in a final rebellion against Christ. And you can read that in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15. And the response to this is going to be God's going to destroy them from heaven. And, and, and in that same time will be the final judgment, uh, the great white throne judgment, which I think there is only one future judgment. Uh, there's Jesus is the final judge at both places, <laughs> in the both places. He's the final judge in the last days. One coming 
one coming judgment. And then where all the saints get their rewards and their accolades and they're in the rest and all the damned get their uh, just desserts and are damned for all eternity. And then number six, the redeemed will live in the glory realm for all eternity. Revelation 21, 22, Revelation 21 through 22, where that's where, where the, that's where we're going to wind up those who have faith in Christ. They're going to wind up in this spot. Now, I'll give you these <clears throat> one, two, three, four, five. These are contributing factors to my view. Now, uh, you know, this, these, as I understand scripture, these are the places, this is what I, this is, this is how I think it's going to wind up. Now, uh, I'm not going to fall out with anybody over these things. I'm not going to say that disagreeing with my view means you're a heretic or you're foolish or silly. Uh, I just, Christianity, you, you can make Christian doctrine too narrow. Too narrow. Uh, and just to kind of give you a taste of what this is like, in Bible-believing Christianity, there is incredible, incredible unity over the gospel and the doctrine of justification by faith. There is incredible unity. There is incredible unity over what a church should look like. I mean, even Protestant, I mean, you know, Tato Baptist, Baptist, they all agree that the, a visible church is composed of baptized people. And there's, there's a lot of agreement. In eschatology, there is a lot of different opinions, different opinions. And it wasn't until the early part of the 20th century that believing in the pre-tribulation rapture, pre-millennialism, became uh, like a cardinal doctrine. This is, this is, you had to believe this or you're not a fundamentalist, you're not a Bible believer. So, I'm not going to fall out with people over these things. And, um, and my weakness in this area is, some of my weakness here is just because I, I've never really been uh, that interested in the particular doctrine of eschatology. Uh, partly because, uh, most of the eschatology uh, taught in, in the circles in which I've been around is that it's uh, all about something in the future that has nothing to do with me. That has nothing to do with me. So uh, I think we have to take Revelation and remember that the book of Revelation is a church epistle. How do we know that? It says it right in the beginning and uh I'll, I'll read it to you and you can have a have this understanding revelation chapter 1 verse 4 john to the seven churches in the province of asia so john's writing to these seven churches now a person might say well yes to those churches not to us today all right well, if you're going to say that, then you also have to say that Romans, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, uh, First and Second Corinthians—none of those, 
are for us either because they are addressed to specific churches or people in certain places so uh, if you're gonna if that's going to be your your maxim to live by you got to apply it consistently so we say all these church letters are to be taken to taken uh, taken to heart by us and so must uh, these this letter to the seven churches of Revelation now this was not seven individual letters this was one letter passed around to seven churches in an area uh, and so and I think Revelation describes for us the conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness and Revelation 4 through 18 that this is the struggle between darkness and light in this world and that no matter the and when we learn is that no matter the setbacks or losses that take place amongst Christians in the Christian church is that in the end the Son of God is victorious in the end the Son of God is victorious he is going to cast down his enemies and be exalted as the king above all things now here I'll give these uh, contributing factors to my view one two three four five eight number one uh, I think that true Israel and the universal church are one and the same and the promises made to Abraham are promises made to the elect redeemed believers Galatians 3:29. those who believe are the seed of Abraham now there's a little more to that I'm gonna turn there and read it uh, Galatians 3:29. listen to this reading uh, if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise so I think that the the church of the firstborn you know the uh, uh, the general assembly of the saints and the church and Israel it's all the same the true true authentic spiritual Israel is the same as the universal church and so when you uh, if you separate the church and Israel you come to different conclusions uh, number two I think that Revelation 4 through 18 describes the conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness and it is a church epistle epistle to show the church what it will face no matter what loss we face in time Christ and his church is victorious uh, three I think that saying the second coming is in two waves or parts is incorrect John 14 3 Jesus says I will come again now in most in most eschatological schemes that you'll hear described Jesus comes he comes for the saints and then he comes with the saints now that's two comings two comings and uh two comings so jesus doesn't say i will come again and again and sometimes you know, some people stab jesus coming three or four times i will be i will come again and again and again and again i think it's i think it's uh incorrect to say that he comes in ways he's one coming again um, I believe that there is a 1,000 year kingdom I think there will be an actual 1,000 year kingdom I think that's very clear and you see that in Revelation 20 where it's mentioned six times repeatedly six times repeatedly uh, was less clear to me are all these times of the tribulations and those kind of things I believe there will be a, a millennial kingdom and because there is a millennial kingdom 
uh, that will be on the earth. Uh, that, influence, that influences the way I interpret some of these things. And lastly, fifthly, I don't think there is any profit, at least not much, in all the millions of man hours spent in teaching, studying, and adoption of Christians about something that they will miss. Most of your eschatological teachings are about the events that are going to take place in, during the seven year tribulation period. If that is true, if that's true, um, then that's a lot of time spent studying something that has nothing to do with us. And that kind of is what we tend to do, isn't it? If we, if we master eschatology, it doesn't really uh, exhort me to love my neighbor better. <laughs> that kind of thing. So I don't, I don't think there's any profit. Let me change the word any. I don't think there is much, much profit uh, in those things. Well, my friends, this concludes our study of the Confession of Faith. And there are uh, some supplemental sections in the printed copy. And uh, we may come back and touch on those things at a future time. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to these lectures and attend. And if you uh, have any questions, feel free to contact me via email at Terry Basham, I I at gmail.com. That's T E R R Y B A S H A M I I at gmail.com. Or you can contact me here at Faith Baptist Church in Sheboygan, Michigan. And uh, I wish you the very best. Uh, let's have a short prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study uh, and think about you and uh, to kind of be put in awe of how you've arranged this world uh, for our benefit and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.